Greetings all. Welcome again to the Everyday Hope Podcast on time this time, by the way. Apologies for being late last week. But here we are, and I have good news. I did get all of my cues back, just like they said. I can now say all the good cue words, so if we run across any 15-syllable words, we're good. Hey, so we're still in Revelation 2, exploring the messages to the seven churches. We already talked about the message to the church at Ephesus, the church of sound doctrine that had forgotten to love their neighbors. And we talked about how sound doctrine without love is only half the picture. Jesus said we need both. And in the last episode, you know, the late one, we talked about the message to the church at Smyrna, the church that endures suffering. And we heard Jesus' encouragement and his great promise that all of our bad times have meaning because if we hold on to our faith, there is life for us at the end of the journey. So in the first two messages, we've learned two important things about living as the church. First, we need to love God enough to obey him and to love our neighbors enough to serve them. And second, no matter what we face, God will walk us through that valley and give our struggles meaning. Today, we're going to move down the road again and talk about the message to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Now, you might not know much about Pergamum, but it was kind of an important city way back in the day. Pergamum was the original capital of the Roman province of Asia before the capital was moved to Ephesus. It was also the original focal point of emperor worship until that too was moved to Ephesus. And it had a wonderful and famed library until Mark Antony gave it to Cleopatra, which of course she moved to Alexandria in Egypt. So Pergamum was kind of the city that was, you know what I mean? The city that used to be great, the city of lost splendor. But Pergamum is also important to us for another reason. The bishop of Pergamum at the end of the first century was a famous church father, Antipas, who is directly mentioned here in Revelation 2. Antipas was ordained by John himself and was martyred around 90 AD in Pergamum. The story goes that he was roasted alive in a large copper altar built in the shape of a bull. Which leads conveniently to a little segment I'd like to call Whining with Pastor Dave. I feel as though I'm being roasted alive in a large copper pot. Has anyone noticed that every day in August is 100 degrees? No, no, you're right. Been there, done that. I should whine about something else this time. Okay, then. So we're watching a Canadian cowboy show, and I'm getting tired of hearing the word aboot. Everybody wants to talk aboot something, or the gas station is aboot two miles down the road. I'm a boot to lose my mind if one more person makes progress on their process. No! You know what? You're right. That's, that's not right. Canadians are our neighbors. I apologize to all my Canadian brothers and sisters. We love you guys. So, yeah, sorry. Okay, let's get back to Pergamum. So, let's take a look at the message to Pergamum. Remember that all seven messages include the same seven sections, although the content of each section is unique. And I want to read the message to the Church of Pergamum, verses 12 to 17, using that framework of seven sections. All right, so verse 12 covers the first four sections, the destination, who they're writing to, the command to write, the the section, the words of the Lord, and the description of the speaker, who is Jesus. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is a little bit of a scary description of Jesus, right? Then comes the I know section. In verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, 
And you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. Sounds like these folks have experienced some persecution, but in spite of that, they have held on to Jesus' name. So that's a big positive. Then comes the arrangement section, which compared to the others is pretty long and starts with a but, which is usually bad news. In verses 14 to 16, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. We'll need to unpack this, but it sounds pretty bad. Then finally, the proclamation in verse 17. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, Ephesus was the loveless church, and Smyrna was the suffering church. So, let's talk about this church at Pergamum. Now, the message to Pergamum starts off pretty good. Jesus encourages and commends them for continuing to call themselves Christians, even though they live in a city that is violently opposed to Jesus. Remember that this was an important city in the cults of ancient Rome. And while there were many temples in Pergamum, the city was focused primarily on the worship of three main deities. Asclepius, the snake god who gave health and healing and to whom the largest temples and structures in the city were devoted. Dionysus, the god of wine who gave eternal life and joined with his followers in wild celebrations of drunken debauchery. And finally, Demeter, the goddess of wheat and harvest, who provided food and nourishment. This was a city that found a source for every need in life apart from the Christian God. Nevertheless, the church insisted on calling themselves Christian and holding on to the name of Jesus, even after their bishop, Antipas, was roasted alive. So it seems there was a lot to commend this church for. However, In verse 14, the message turns and Jesus begins to admonish them for some pretty serious stuff. It appears that this was the church of religious compromise. From verses 14 to 16, it seems that this church let two brazen heresies flourish in their midst. They tolerated the teachings of Balaam and they tolerated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In fact, some folks inside the church were even following those two teachings. So I guess we should start by talking about Balaam and the Nicolaitans who they were, and what they were teaching. Well, you can find the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 to 25, and if you're not careful, you might read his story and think he was an okay guy. However, Balaam is not remembered fondly in any Jewish literature, including the Talmud. He doesn't fare any better in the New Testament. Both 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1 speak unkindly of him, and these are the two letters focused entirely on the issue of false teachers. Now, the quick and dirty on Numbers 22 to 24 is that the people of Israel are wandering in the desert, right? And after the whole bronze serpent episode, they end up camped near Moab. The king of Moab, a guy named Balak, sends messengers to summon Balaam so that he would come and curse Israel for them. So he was a prophet and they thought, huh, this is how we could defeat our enemy. But God tells him not to do that. So he refuses to curse Israel. But they persist. So God finally says to Balaam, okay, go with them, but only do what I tell you to do. Then there's a weird part where Balaam gets up to go with them and God gets angry that he does. And you think to yourself, wait, didn't God just tell him to go? But it's more complicated than that. You see, 
Balaam goes not to obey God, but to line his pockets. This is what most of the commentary on Numbers 22 shows us. Balaam's a greedy person, and he thinks there's an opportunity here. So he goes, but not out of obedience to God. And this is confirmed by what Balaam ends up doing. Since Balaam was not allowed to curse the Israelites, he teaches King Balak another way to bring them down. Disobedience to God. Balaam tells the king to entice them to commit sexual sins and to worship false gods. This is the general consensus on the interpretation of Numbers 22 to 25, which means the plague and death of Numbers 25 is also laid at Balaam's feet. You can see why they don't like this guy. So, is Jesus telling us that Balaam has risen from the grave and come to Pergamum? Of course not. Okay, so is there a Balaam cult flourishing there in the first century? Well, not likely. So what is it? Well, Balaam is used as a type. Jesus is saying, hey, you've got people there who attempt to lead Christians astray by false teachings and sexual impurity, just like that hated character of ancient Hebrew lore. With me? Those who teach Christians to violate God's commandments are those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Jesus admonishes them for tolerating these false teachers and allowing some within the church to actually follow them. Now, we know very little about the Nicolaitans. The Bible only mentions them here in Revelation, and only in this context. And there are very few references in other writings, but the lack of explanation here is evidence that the original readers of this document would have known exactly who it was referring to, and so the explanation was not necessary. So what do we know? Well, they were likely an early Gnostic Epicurean sect. I know, that's a great big nerdy mouthful, right? Well, let me explain. Epicureans were a Greek sect that believed in the indulgence of the flesh. There were two Greek schools of thought on indulgence. One believed that enlightenment was achieved by starving the flesh of its desires and suppressing overt emotion in order to become more focused through heightened awareness, the Stoics, like Mr. Spock. The other believed that if you satiated the flesh by satisfying every desire, the lack of want would produce heightened clarity. These were the Epicureans. Gnostics, on the other hand, were folks that believed spirit was good and matter was evil, and that a special knowledge that was within you could save you. Gnostic teachers attached themselves to Christianity in the 2nd to 4th centuries and tried to infiltrate the gospel with their strange teachings. And Gnostics could go in one of two directions. Since spirit is good and flesh is bad, then you can either deny the flesh or indulge it, right? Sound familiar? Which means these Nicolaitans were probably a Gnostic sect that tried to attach themselves to the church and taught the indulgence of fleshly desires in order to accomplish exactly what Paul warns us against in Romans 6, sinning so that grace might abound. They taught that sin no longer mattered since Jesus had forgiven all sin for all time. And since the flesh was evil and only spirit mattered, satisfying fleshly desires really meant nothing, right? It's pretty bad stuff. So Jesus admonishes the church at Pergamum for not only tolerating them, but also for allowing some of the church to begin following those teachings themselves. Pergamum, it seems, was the anti-Ephesus. They were the church who had lost their grip on sound doctrine. Now this reminds me of a story. Once upon a time, three ogres were trained by the oldest and wisest wizard in the forest. The sage old wizard had taught them many things about how to live and survive in the forest. He taught them how to fish, he taught them how to hunt, he taught them how to choose the right caves to live in, and how to keep them warm and dry, and he taught them never ever to eat humans. One day the kindly old wizard told the ogres that he was very old and was about to die, but he urged them to remember all the things he had taught them, 
They promised, and the old man left. After several months had passed, some new ogres came to live with the three that the wise old wizard had trained. These three taught the new ogres all the things they had learned from the wizard. One day, one of the new ogres asked one of the old ogres if it was okay to eat humans. The old ogre said that the wizard had told them not to eat humans because it wasn't good. And he prepared to show the new ogre how to hunt for other animals. But the new ogre didn't understand. He asked, are, are you sure he said don't eat humans? Are you sure he meant all humans? The old ogre scratched his head, trying to remember exactly what the wizard had told him. And the new ogre continued questioning and badgering the old ogre. And finally, the old ogre was so confused about what the wizard had actually meant when he said, don't eat humans. So the new ogres talked the old ogres into going out and eating some humans. And this is why there are no more ogres. Now, doesn't the story and this situation remind you a little of another story? Maybe a story from Genesis 3? Remember that story where, where two people were given pretty simple instructions, but someone came along and confused them and talked them into disobeying those instructions? Yeah, there are a lot of churches today like Pergamum. These churches may appear to practice tolerance and, and follow a live and let live method of Christianity. They say, why judge? Why divide people? We will allow any teaching or doctrine so long as the name of Jesus is praised in worship on Sunday morning. They are churches of religious compromise. There are churches all over out there that overreact to the mistake of the Ephesian church who could not tolerate sinners at all by tolerating almost everything. Their solution is to become Pergamum, to not just accept sinners, which they should do, but also to tolerate sin and false teaching. They are the anti-Ephesus. They have forgotten that sound doctrine still matters, even though it hangs entirely on love. They have too easily allowed false teaching to enter into their community, to tolerate those lies, and the result is that members of their church are following those teachings. And, and this matters. Look, the Jesus who addressed Ephesus was the Jesus who is in authority and who is ever-present. The Jesus who addressed Smyrna is the Jesus who died and rose again, who gives us eternal life. The Jesus who addresses Pergamum, however, is the Jesus who possesses the sharp two-edged sword and who threatens to make war on the church with the sword of his mouth. There is no way for me to hear that description without thinking of Hebrews 4, 12-13, which says, Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Jesus presents himself to Pergamum as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's saying to them, hey, you know what, you can pretend all you want. You can make nice in front of the pagans so you don't seem weird. You can even pretend in front of other churches, but there is one thing you can't fool. The word of God. It is living and active. It is sharp and penetrating. It will judge your thoughts and intentions. And before the word, you must answer for your actions. Sound doctrine isn't the whole story, but sound doctrine still matters, right? Right and wrong still matter. It's not enough to obey God, but fail to love neighbor. It's also not enough to love your neighbor but failed to obey God. With me? Now, the first message in Revelation to the church at Ephesus was a message regarding the importance of love. This poor church had clung desperately to sound doctrine, but had forgotten love, 
As a consequence, they were in danger of not even being a church anymore. We learned that in God's eyes, nothing trumps love. Love for him and love for our neighbors. To some, this may have sounded like the message that lets you do whatever you want whenever you want, because all you need is love. But if you remember, I never said that sound doctrine doesn't matter. In fact, I insisted that it does. And here's the proof. Pergam is the church of toleration. They permit and they allow, and some of them even follow, but they cling to the name of Jesus. And Jesus, the penetrating word, threatens to come with the sword of his mouth and make war upon them. Sound doctrine hangs on love. But sound doctrine still matters. To those churches who disregard issues of doctrine, to those churches who disregard issues of doctrine and are what the postmodern world calls tolerant or inclusive, Jesus threatens to make war on them with the very word of God. Yes, there is grace. Yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, there is eternal life. Jesus makes it clear through his own words and the words he gave Paul that eternal life is ours because of what Jesus has done, not because of our works. We cannot earn it through good doctrine and aren't cast out when we slip up in sin. However, Jesus also says through his own words and the words he gave to James that once we have been saved and claimed to have faith in Jesus, our lives will be different. We will deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. We may not be perfect, but we will strive to be salt and light in the world, interacting with it, yet holding ourselves apart in the things we do and don't do. When folks come to me and they struggle with a decision, I try to get them to ask three questions to help them decide. First, does God have an opinion about whatever this is about? Second, what is God's opinion? And third, this is the tough one, do you care? Obviously, this applies more to should I leave my wife, then do I buy a red car or a blue one, right? But sometimes we know what God thinks and want what we want anyway. Sometimes folks struggle with the desires of their heart when those desires conflict with the word of God. We have been commanded to love God with all of ourselves, and that necessarily means considering his opinion about life and making his opinion a priority. It means living in a way that pleases him in accordance with his commands. And to do that... We have to know him and his commands, and that means studying and remembering his word. To each Christian, Jesus says, it's important to love your neighbor. And he also says that obeying him is also important. We must never forget to love, but we must never forget to hold to the truth. So how do we do this? How do we cling to sound doctrine and to love? How do we keep ourselves from becoming Ephesus, but also keep ourselves from becoming Pergamum? Well, maybe a good first step is stop applying God's love to ourselves and sound doctrine to everyone else. Perhaps a good first step would be to make love our starting point with others. And since we already have and know God's love, we should prioritize sound doctrine in our own lives. This way, we won't turn into legalists like Ephesus, and we won't become the folks who allow false teaching and compromised theology to take us down the road to Pergamon. All right, I'm going to pray for you now. And as always, please be safe and keep your eyes on what you're doing. Just let your hearts pray with me right now. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this message to the churches. We thank you for reminding us that it's not enough to do part of what you ask. You want us to follow you all the way. When you were asked what the most important thing was, you told us to do two things, to love you enough to obey you and to love our neighbors. Lord, we don't want to be Ephesus and we don't want to be Pergamum. We want to be followers of you. We want to do what pleases you, and we need your help to do it. Lord, help us as we go forward. 
to be yours. Lord, we also ask that you'd keep us safe over these next weeks and months. Things are still crazy out there, Lord, but you are God. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for joining me again. I will talk to you in the next episode about the church at Thyatira. Peace.